Hey everybody, how you doing? It's Steph. It's time for a little bit of the old libertarian love doctor. So put the lights down low, put on some freedomainradio.com and get ready to some good old freedom loving. Hope you're doing well. I, uh, <laughs> I think that I put the white in Barry White. <laughs> so I hope you're doing well. I had a question on the board, which I thought was interesting, and I thought I would mention it because it's part of a topic that I was going to continue on from, turning ashes into adrenaline, which was my conversation about what I felt, at least, about uh, death. Hang on, let me just adjust the volume a little here. About death. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about this question, which was, when do you tell a potential lover or a lover in the making <laughs> that you are a libertarian? A very interesting question, I do think. So my thought on it is that you should tell that person when it's right. And I know that that is a cheesy cop-out, so I'd like to sort of mention why I think that's the case and give you a little bit more detail about what I mean in sort of the final Master Jiu-Jitsu High Black Belt 7th Dan version of what it is to be free. It is uh, to uh, trust your instincts. And it's something that's so easy to say, and because we are so bullied around in school and so often bullied around by our parents and our siblings and all that, we generally don't develop a very strong or good trust in our instincts, which I think is a real shame. And the thing I think we should do is to really trust our instincts, because when you trust your instincts, you really do get a strong sense of what is meant by freedom. So let me tell you just a little bit about that, and, let, and then you can sort of tell me what you, what you think of all of this. So when I say that you should trust your instincts, what I mean by that is that you have within you your unconscious, we'll just call it for want of a better phrase, and by that I don't mean anything to do with the Freudian id superego and ego tri trinity uh, of the unconscious, or I don't mean any of the collective unconscious or uh, Mandela-based archetypical stuff of uh, Jung, or the Skinner stuff, or, or any of that other stuff. What I mean by the unconscious is uh, the, um, the part of you that absorbs all the facts of reality, whether you, want to, uh, whether you want it to or not. In fact, I would say that until you become quite advanced, and I'm not saying I'm anywhere there yet, but once you become quite advanced in self-knowledge, then you have the capacity for your conscious mind to be as rational as your unconscious mind. And that is something that is can be a long time in coming, well worth pursuing, because boy, oh boy, does it ever take the energy, uh, the wasted energy out of life. When you can trust your instincts and trust your feelings, then you actually are, you have a lot of autopilot in your life. You don't have to sit there and wonder, should I take this job? Should I go out with this woman? What's the right thing to do? What's the right time? I used to tie myself up in knots about this kind of stuff. And... So, for instance, you want to just start to trust your own instincts, to trust your own feelings. It takes a little while to get there, because the first thing you have to do is start validating your own feelings and your own instincts. And most of us don't want to do that, because our feelings and our instincts are not exactly positive to those in our lives who I've talked about before, in terms of family and friends and extended family and maybe bosses and teachers who are out to do us harm or out to belittle us or out to diminish us or some such stuff. So we're not very good at trusting our instincts because we've been basically taught not to. You know, we've had all of our instincts scrubbed out of us, and that's the first thing that you want to do when you are interested in controlling another human being is to turn them against their own instincts. 
because then they lose their power and they become neurotic, right? You overthink everything. You, you Everything has six million different possibilities. It is our unconscious that will guide us to the right answer. But uh, we are not in touch with that because we uh, are, are taught not to. We are bullied against it. We are pushed back from it through emotional um, violence, emotional bullying, emotional humiliation, usually in public school or private school. Or we are directly pushed back from it through physical attacks in the home. So the idea of asking a question like, when should you tell a, a girl or a boy that you're interested in that you are a libertarian, the only answer that I can give you, obviously there's no, you know, wait 1.2 days after, the, there's no objective answer, but the answer is absolutely within you. And I know I'm not going to get all <laughs> Zen on your high knee or anything like that, because I don't like that kind of stuff at all. But I will quote some evidence to support this idea that we have an enormous amount of knowledge within us, that if we simply start to, start to learn to accept that knowledge, that our life becomes much more easy, much more powerful. And then we have the greatest good that somebody who is free can have. We have the greatest good. And the greatest good that somebody who is free can have, other than that freedom itself, is the fact that we appear, we appear free. And that's a very interesting thing, because we're all torn with this topic of how on earth do we convince other people that they should be libertarians. And the only thing, my friends, that I have ever found to be effective is to be free to be happy, to be joyous, to be in love, to have a great marriage, to have a great and exciting career, to have interesting and stimulating conversations with people, to be free, uh, to be uncluttered, to be unified, to be like an arrow in flight in terms of how you go through your day. And that doesn't sort of mean monomaniacal or single-minded, because as an executive you have to twist and turn six ways from Sunday throughout your day. But to be free in your mind and in your heart and to speak openly and to make jokes if you feel like it and not to make jokes if you don't feel like it. And if you are free in your life and in your heart and you appear free, I know, I know that sounds a little shallow, like you should only appear free, but i got to tell you, a lot of libertarians that I've talked to don't seem particularly free. They seem kind of knotted up. They seem kind of uh, twisted because they so much value these ideas and nobody else around them does, so they get bitter or they get hostile or they get upset or they get contemptuous or they get superior or whatever. And it doesn't look very free to me. To walk around, to trot around with false superiority does not seem very free to me. And the reason that it's false superiority is that it's all well and good for us to claim that we're doctors, but if we can't get anybody to take our medicine, then we failed as doctors. I mean, if you're sitting in your room and you want to be free, and you're free, or you're free in your marriage, fantastic, great. But if you're listening to this, or you're on the boards, or you're talking to people, or you're writing emails or letters to the editor, or whatever it is that you're doing, for the cause, once you do that, you are to be measured by your success. You are to be measured by your success. And if you have no success, if you alienate people around you, if you make people hostile and afraid to deal with you or just find you unpleasant to deal with, and I've been there at times in my life, so I'm not uh, throwing any stones from anywhere <laughs> except within a glass house. So if you end up like that, then you really are not good at what you do. You are not successful. You are not an intelligent and effective, uh, you may be intelligent, but you're certainly not an effective libertarian. 
And so, to me, that's why I say it's false superiority. Because if you're out there wading around the cultural world, trying to make a difference, and you turn off a lot of people that you talk to, then you really have not succeeded in your stated goal. In fact, you're failing miserably. And given that you have the stated goal, which you have rationally accepted, called "I want to make the world more logical," and you are doing the complete opposite, then you can scarcely be said to be logical. <laughs> I mean, that would be sort of a uh, <laughs> You know, if I wanted to go from Toronto to Vancouver and I started heading eastward, then it would seem to me that it would be somewhat illogical. And if I spent my whole time going eastward and saying that everybody who's interested in getting from A to B is such an idiot, then I would actually sort of wrap myself in that same category, wouldn't I? I mean, just logically, because I'm going the exact opposite direction. So libertarians who want to affect the world in a positive manner. And say that you know, that's their goal, right? When you talk to people, you're trying to change their minds for the better. I mean, otherwise, why bother? And if every time you talk to people, you turn them off, then you've actually done the opposite of what you intend, which is irrational, especially if you don't correct your course. So it's hard for people, for me, for people to see people. Sorry, it's hard for me to see people who rail against the stupidity of the others and the, the sheeple, and you know everybody's an idiot, because that's not going to turn anyone onto our cause, which means that we're actually not being that bright in approaching the in- issues of freedom. So uh, don't uh, be up there casting down your slings and arrows from this high pedestal onto the uh, the uh, supposed idiots in the world, because well, for a couple of reasons, um, a because it's illogical. It's absolutely illogical to say that other people are idiots and I want the world to be free. Because of course, if everybody's it, an idiot, then the world is never going to be free. If you and I and that guy over there are the only intelligent people in the world, and we're the only people who have any wisdom or knowledge or smarts or understand any real issues, then let's give it up. <laughs> we're never going to make the world free because people are just so stupid. And so there's no point to me staying in the libertarian movement if you believe that people are just stupid. Now, of course, there are stupid people, and I believe that there are fewer stupid people in the libertarian movement simply because it's intellectually quite demanding. But that doesn't mean that there are more wise people in the intellectual in the intellectual world, particularly in the libertarian world. I wouldn't say that I have seen an excess of wisdom in the libertarian world. Now, I can't say I've seen an excess of wisdom anywhere else in the world either. But that's something that's important to understand. Uh, secondly, of course, it is usually the case that libertarians did not approach libertarianism, and I've been sort of asking people about this. When on the boards to find out what their conversion experience was, and I use conversion in a sort of tongue-in-cheek manner, an enlightenment experience, you could say. And you know, one and all, it's kind of the same. It's like, well, I wandered around, I did this, I did that, I did the other, and then I picked up a book by Harry Brown or Murray Rothbard or Ayn Rand, or you know, maybe listen to one of Steph's more coherent podcasts, of which I think there are two. Oh wait, no, those are articles. But uh, what happened was people. Uh, wandered around in the sort of intellectually numb landscape of the modern world, and then there was this ah! <laughs> these choirs opened up, these angels opened up when they read these books, and they were converted on the spot. Well, that's you, <laughs> you know. So you really can't claim, and, and neither can I. But if you if you were someone like this, you really can't claim to have been converted on the basis of your unbelievable intelligence. Certainly, I can't. Because when I first read Ayn Rand, it clicked in me like you know, like a, a master thief getting through some complex tumblers to open the lock. I, I swallowed the thing. I swallowed the thing whole, 
and I began, well, it took me 20 years to be original after that, but I definitely swallowed the thing whole, and I can't claim that I believed the opposite, and through a process of intense intellectual rigor, overcoming my own emotional opposition, I fought my way, and I didn't come, I didn't come that way to the truth at all. I came to the truth in a burst of illumination. And then I worked to validate it, right? Because you don't want to be one of these guys who has a vision like, let's invade Jerusalem <laughs> and not validate it. So then I spent a long time validating it. But the initial conversion experience had nothing to do with my conscious intellect. You could say that it had to do to wisdom within my unconscious. And that's a pretty untestable theory, but it would be worth exploring at some point. But it was not an intellectually rigorous exercise for me to become a libertarian. It was a little bit more of an intellectually rigorous exercise for me to become an anarchist, but that uh, I'm sure everybody's aware of because they've been listening. If you've got this far in the podcast, you have some sense of the journey. So it's illogical to get angry at people who don't have the same illuminative experience that you have when being exposed to libertarian ideas, unless it's possible for them to do it, but you have turned them off through your own approach to them. So, I mean, I've talked about this before. There's no point going into it again. And I'm certainly not saying that, you know, if you are aggressive or libertarian, you're like an evil guy or anything. I mean, you can do whatever you want. Just recognize that it's completely hypocritical to call people stupid for not accepting logical ideas and then continue to rail against people who don't accept your ideas without changing your course of behavior. Because if you change your course of behavior, then you will change other people's behaviors. I've actually started to get some emails now from people who were Democrats or Republicans who are finding the site and finding it interesting. I can also tell you that our bandwidth has gone lunatic. And I think that's because, as somebody said on, I think, podfeed.net, that I deliver these, I don't know, rational atheist sermons, if that makes any sense. I try to deliver them in a way that's warm and inviting and curious, and what do you think? And yes, I get passionate, but I believe that passion is an essential ingredient in thought because otherwise you're just some abstract brain-in-a-tank intellectual reasoning in the clouds. So passion and, and the emotions are a very important part of reasoning. And I think that the, the warmth, the passion, I mean, what if, to whatever degree that I can achieve it, I've tried to put that into the podcast because I want to make it inviting. And it's the same thing with the boards. I want to make them an inviting place to be. I want to make them a fun place for people to post. I want it to, make a, uh, want it to be a place where people can be completely free to be completely confused and have people help them have people help them. And if you show up at a doctor's and you say, my arm hurts, and he says, what kind of idiot doesn't know how to fix his arm, then you probably aren't going to go back to that doctor. And in fact, I think I would call that doctor kind of like a jerk, right? So if we are doctors, then we need to have a slightly better bedside manner if we do want to be able to make a change. So that's sort of the first thing that I would suggest. If you have within your mind or within your heart, you have this idea that let's say you're dating some girl and you're approaching the topic of libertarianism with her and you are completely terrified because if she says, oh, that stuff's stupid, then you feel like, right, that's it. I have to get up and I have to march out of this room and I have to be the Howard Rock of monk-like sexually inactive integrity and therefore I can never get my leg up. No. <laughs> therefore I can never get it on. Well, it is the libertarian love doctor. Let me use a couple of slang words. I can never make the beast with two backs. Um, then that's going to be kind of stressful, right? You're going to be kind of stressed when you approach it. And uh, that to me is um, not the right way to do it. 
So let me talk just a few minutes about what I mean by trusting your instincts. I'll, I think I'll get to the proof this afternoon, uh, so, or at least some, some evidence for it this afternoon. So trusting your instincts is knowing that you will know when the right time is to do something. It means not thinking ahead and marking out territory in the future about the right time to perform actions which cannot be logically reasoned out, for which there is no objective answer. And I know that we're libertarians, and I know that we're cunning and uh, excellent logicians, but, oh, my friends, you know that there is a large, large, large amount of life for which there is no objective logical answer and which is completely essential. A small example of this would be at what time do you let your child take the bus on his own? Can we say this that there is an objective answer or an objective means test to allow this to happen? Well of course not. To what degree do you let your child engage in sports where they can get hurt? Well, maybe if they're eight years old, bungee jumping isn't for them. But if you can't, if you don't let them have a skateboard, and I, you know, I was talking with my friend the other day uh, when we, before his funeral about the apartment buildings that we uh, grew up in. I call them the the matriarchal manners because they were all single mom families, and uh, of course, all of the kids were held back from, especially the boys, were held back from doing the rough and tumble that boys love. And we had to go and sort of do it in secret. We had to have an affair with danger because our moms didn't let us because moms in general, to, to generalize perhaps rudely, moms in general are more concerned about injuries and dads are like, yeah, walk it off. And so boys sort of need that, right? I mean, you, you could end up being a bit of a, uh, uh, you know, sort of little Lord Fauntleroy if you end up not being out to go and rough and tumble it. So... Of course, I took countless spills off my bike and climbing trees and playing soccer and playing rugby when I was a kid. And my mother was horrified every single time and would sort of flutter and faint and pull one of these Victorian parlor room scenes. And then I would go out and do it again. It's just something the boys need to do. I uh, can't explain it other than, you know, we're sort of the hunter-gatherer programmed kids. So we have to do that kind of stuff. We have to get used to danger. We have to understand the limits of physicality. Even though we don't do an enormous amount of hunter-gathering anymore, it's not like our biology has changed just because we've tacked civilization onto our souls. So, when do you allow and to what degree do you allow? And you can't do that. When should you kiss the girl? You're in the movie theater or you're watching a video. When should you kiss the girl? You tell me when exactly the right moment is. Well, of course, when she starts kissing you, that's not a bad indication. But that's usually not how it works still, despite feminism. Men have to make the first moves. And when do you do it? Well, you screw your courage to the sticking place and you make a move. And either you get accepted and your heart leaps or you get rejected and your heart sinks. And then you follow by the bitter rage of how could you leave me on, leave me on and blah, blah, blah. But there is no objective way. There's no objective way to say when that should happen. In the alchemy of romance, in the alchemy of attraction, there's so much that's going on that you, if you try and read signs, you're just not going to have a hope. The CEO of my company came into my office on Monday morning talking about a rather crucial business meeting he had with some investors. And I asked him how it went, and he said, well. And I said, well, what evidence do you have? Because right? I'm a logical guy, right? So I said, well, what evidence do you have that it went well? And he hummed and he hoard, and he finally said, well, the body language seemed very good. 
And if you're, you know, I'll tell you this, I, I may be no business genius, but I will tell you this, that if you're in a crucial business meeting, like a job interview, or you're trying to get investment, or you're trying to land a major account, if you come out of the meeting and the only thing that you've got going for you is an interpretation of body language, I'll tell you right now, that meeting did not go well. <laughs> if you don't walk out of there with a tangible commitment, then the meeting did not, did not go well. And that's sort of important to understand that you can't sort of read these kinds of things into where there's the possibility of objective uh, behaviors or something which is measurable. So if you ask a girl out and she says no, you can't then say, but her body language was positive. So if you ask for an order from a client and you get a no, then you can't say that the body language, I mean, you can, but it doesn't mean anything. You can't eat body language. You can't get commission off body language. So trusting your instincts is understanding or recognizing that there is a vast sphere of life. And I've given two examples of about a bajillion. There is a vast sphere of life wherein there is no logical, objective measure that you can parse intellectually that is going to give you the answer. But because of that fact, human beings who are adaptive organisms, of course, because of that fact, we have developed enormous, complicated, sophisticated, powerful, mind-bendingly precise mechanisms for determining the right answers based on a very small amount of information. And that is what I call the unconscious. But it relies that you rely on your feeling. It requires that you rely on your instincts, that you trust your feelings, that you tap into your passions. That's why I focus so much on passion. And there are times when I feel, just to sort of lift the lid on the podcast process, there are times when I feel a surge of anger or sympathy or sorrow within a podcast and I let myself go there and usually I find that there's some useful stuff there. These podcasts aren't all plotted. I don't have 20 points I want to get over. They're not plotted out. I'm following my instincts when I am following these podcasts. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that I say is true. It just means that this is where my gut is telling me to go. I think it's useful and it's worthwhile and people have told me that it is. But what I think is important is to remember that everything is subject to validation. The instincts are not infallible. I can't say in my life that I've ever had a particular time when I have followed my instincts and bad things have resulted. Now, things that I haven't wanted have resulted, but as it turned out, they were better. I was better for them. So if I didn't get a job, even though I thought I wanted a job after an interview, it would turn out that the company did... I wouldn't track these things, right, just out of curiosity. It would turn out the company did badly, or the guy who was in, who they hired... Uh, didn't work out or was gone within six months, and that's pretty important, right? Because if they hire someone they don't like, then rejecting you is a good thing. So if you want to go out with the girl, but the girl is attracted to bad boys and doesn't go out with you, that's kind of a compliment to you, right? Because you're not some weenie, chain-smoking, over-drinking, leather-bound drummer guy or something. So that's actually a compliment to you. If she's attracted to bad boys, you want to go out with her, and she says no, I mean, that's a drag, but... Uh, it's actually better. It's better for you. Right? You can't always get what you want, right? Sometimes you get what you need. So in trusting the instincts, it's a very complicated process to begin, and then it gets much easier. It's just like learning a sport, like, I mean, a particularly challenging sport, like, I don't know, figure skating or something. At the beginning, you're falling on your butt along a lot, but eventually what you want to do, of course, is you want to become so adept at it that it just occurs naturally. And it is really, in a sense, returning to our roots as human beings because this is how we operate as children. As children, 
we get an emotional summation of what is going on around us or within us and it comes up with you know we like it's good or we don't like it's bad make some noise all night and that is important too so when you're a child if you've got gas pains or something you, you won't burp or you couldn't burp when you're a baby then you feel sharp pains in your innards and you understand that you don't know that there's gas moving around there maybe it feels like little dragons eating your intestines I don't know but you definitely feel bad but you don't have any re rational reason for it you don't have any logical reason you simply make your complaints similarly if you're sort of bathed and changed and happy and you know cuddling and all that and you feel good you don't have any logical reason you can't reason that out even if you had the language skills to speak it you could not reason out why you felt happy but you just felt happy and expressed it so we start with the instincts we start with the feelings we start with the non-intellectual non-rational judgment of life and it is a very important aspect of knowledge it is really in a lot of ways the essence of wisdom to trust your instincts and everything that people do to dominate and bully others has to do with detaching them from their instincts and from their passions and from their innate and summed up understandings of the world that occurs through the unconscious and of course the more that you ignore in the conscious mind the more you provoke in the unconscious mind so for instance Jung had this theory and I think he's quite right I mean I'm not saying he was right about everything but I think he was right about this that when you reject or ignore your experiences or your feelings or your thoughts then your unconscious appears to you as an arrestive monster as a sort of hurling back and forth sea foam of storms and passions and upsets and you can't sleep and you have these wild dreams and so what happens is you begin to associate sort of negatively you begin to associate passions with upset but that's not the case at all what's happened is because you have rejected your feelings your unconscious has become stormy and if you he then says that if you accept your feelings and work through your feelings and begin to trust your instincts why then your unconscious becomes as meek as a lamb and that I can absolutely guarantee you from my own experience again you've got to check it out for yourself from my own experience that is completely true I went through a very difficult phase at the end of my last company because I felt as I've mentioned before not too uh, good about what was happening in the company much as I don't feel very good about what's happening in this company but this is a little this is a very different situation which I'll get to hopefully next week I didn't really feel very good about what was happening but I wasn't conscious of that and I didn't sit down and think about it I didn't refer my values right so the highest abstractions and the deepest instincts usually are one and the same so the ideas of truth and honor and integrity occur at a very abstract level and they're very powerful and they're very true and they also occur at a very fundamental emotional level it's the stuff in it's the stuff in the middle it's the filling in the sandwich that <laughs> is the problem and I don't go with the Freudian thing that the superego clamps down upon this seething id and the ego is sort of a helpless little boat storm-tossed on these seas. I don't think that's true at all because my experience has been that when I rejected my instincts and my abstract values, when I did not apply them to a particular situation, in this case it was due to material greed, then I became very unsettled in my mind. I couldn't sleep and I was having wild dreams and I didn't ever feel at peace and then when I accepted those feelings and acted and left the company and uh, so on then my unconscious 
low became a glassy lake that I could swim in and enjoy and splash around in and fish in, and, and it was wonderful. And so it is only when I ignore my instincts and my uh, values, sort of, they're, they're in a sense, they're two sides of the same coin, but they are very abstract and also very gut level. That's where they appear, for me at least. When I ignore my instincts then, and I ignore my values, then I become discombobulated, I become unhappy, I become disturbed. And when I then accept those again, the discontent immediately settles back down into a useful unconscious, like an autopilot, like the instruments on a plane. So you're not sort of peering around trying to figure out where you are. You have some instruments. And that's sort of what has occurred for me. There's some strong evidence that this is a provable phenomenon, and I'll sort of get to that uh, this afternoon. But in the question of when should I tell my very special lady friend about my beliefs about libertarianism, the first thing that I would suggest is be free yourself so that she sees everything that is attractive and free and wonderful about you. And that way, when you begin to explain to her how you arrived at this state of being, she's going to be kind of receptive, right? I mean, you want to buy your vitamins from a healthy guy. I mean, <laughs> I guess to, you know, the Joe the Joe Weeder or Viter or whatever it is, commercials where he's touting his formula or his powder for helping you bulk muscle, right? You don't want Woody Allen as the front man for your muscle building powder formula. You want, and this is, you just can't get away from it, it's just human nature. If you're selling something, you have to already possess it. I mean, if you're talking about things philosophically or emotionally. So, you, that's why in the movie Magnolia, Tom Cruise was the seduce and destroy guy. Because you need, and this is why they like those kinds of guys to be up front. This is why Anthony Robbins has that you know enormous Cheshire Grat tombstone tooth grin, and those what did Jack Black call them in a great movie called Shallow Hell? Oh my God, you've got banana hands! They're like a cluster of bananas, your fingers. I mean, he's enormous, and he's got that little slicked back hair and that enormous lantern jaw and that those steely blue eyes and. So Anthony Robbins, when he talks about, you know, unleash the giant within, it's like, well, because the guy's six foot ten and, you know, handsome in a kind of Ken doll kind of way. And this is, you know, this is the guy who is going to sell you the power within. It's going to be a little bit tough to get the same kind of reaction from people that Harold, uh, that, uh, that Anthony Robbins does. But if you're not six foot ten and sort of handsome and with big tombstone teeth and a <laughs> whatever, right? Banana hands. And that's something that's not transferable, right? I mean, I'm some of this. I don't really know what he says. I just flipped past him on one station where he was saying, you know, people are always telling me that their lives are boring. You know what I say to them? Your life's not boring. You're boring. And so I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, I don't know whether it's true or not, but it doesn't seem to be too well thought out. But, you know, hey, he's passionate about it. And he seems to be committed to whatever, you know. But he went to go and advise Bill Clinton, so who knows what the heck's going on. But... Um, that's why they're like these guys up front. You do have to have some kind of appearance that jibes with what it is that you're saying because people will not believe as much of what you say as what you do. And that's one of the arguments that we constantly have as libertarians, so we should understand this better than anybody. We say, don't listen to what the government says. Of course they're going to say they want to help the poor and they want to heal the sick and they want to whatever. You look at what they actually do. And so that's sort of important as well. When we're asking people to accept our libertarianism, they're not really going to listen to what we say. They're going to look at how we are. How do we present ourselves? How successful is our life? How free do we seem? How happy do we seem?
And if we are some sort of bitter, gnarly troll uh, sitting there, uh, uh, you know, uh, complaining about how dumb everybody is, people aren't necessarily going to be like, hey, <laughs> I really got to get me some of that because I'm just way too happy and have too many good relationships with people. So this whole bitter troll-like libertarian is, that looks great. Sign me up, baby. They're not going to do that. So the first thing that you want to do is to be free and happy yourself. And once you have that, then when you start to talk about your idea, the first thing you want to do is have somebody say, you know, you seem kind of free and happy, and I want to get me some of that. And uh, that, that is very rare. I, I don't know if that's ever happened to me in my life, and I guess I would say that I'm pretty free and happy. And so once you have that, then when you start to talk about what it is that makes you tick, how it is that you got to where you're going, or where you are, it's going to be much more likely that the woman's going to be like, wow, I'm really receptive to this because you're really attractive, you look really happy, you're really great, and she's not going to be attracted to you. This is sort of the last thing I'll get at this morning. If she's attracted to you when you were in a free and happy state, then she is going to automatically be receptive to the ideas of libertarianism because she's already attractive to something attracted to something that is free and happy i.e. you so when you begin to talk about her your ideas with her then she's going to be completely receptive because she's already attracted to you so you know that she values freedom and happiness so don't worry about it be free be happy be open if the topic comes up mention it but if she's attracted to you she's going to be attracted to the ideas you just have to make sure that you present them in an honest way that they bring you freedom that they bring you happiness that they bring you intimacy and connection with other people and that you know it's not a cult but still send a check to Steph thanks so much for listening